Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Dr. Adrian Edwards and Rachel Schleiger are the co-authors of the new and much-needed resource, Firescaping Your Home, which combines the goals of being fire-smart and fire-prepared while also gardening for beauty, food, and habitat. Both women are on faculty in biological sciences at California State University Chico and Butte College, and they draw on their years of experience as researchers, educators, and gardeners in wildfire country to enliven their manual, which includes 640 resilient native plant recommendations from California, Oregon, and Washington to create lush, attractive, and defensible space. I am so excited about this new resource. Welcome to Cultivating Place, Adrian and Rachel. Really excited to dig in. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. I would love to add a little bit to uh, listeners' understanding of who the two of you are. And I want to have you introduce yourself in the way that you like to be introduced and include in that introduction. Um, what your relationship to plants in your life is personally? Like what role do plants take that they would be a, a, a centering device in how you approach this book specifically? Let's start with you, Adrian. Oh my goodness. Plants, along with microbes, support everything else on this planet. And there have been major transformations in our overall landscapes that have happened just in my lifetime, which include, for example, industrial farming and just the expansion of farming to the point where uh, in the 70s, we felt that there was no room for weeds or native plants. And there's now we're trying to, you know, claw our way back to a better understanding of how to farm and sustain ecosystems and increasing development into wild areas as humans were we're just taking a lot of space. And finally, I am so passionate about plants. I could not believe it when I went to college and learned that I could actually study plants for a living. And yet I see this plant blindness as a real problem in our society, where there's this increasing disconnect between the plants that are native to an area versus what maybe urban and suburban people choose to plant without knowing anything about those plants. So mm. plants are everything to me. And I hope that when I'm uh, old and feeble, I can just be left out to pasture to garden sun up to sundown. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Rachel, how would you answer that same question? So for me, I'm going to go back a little bit. Um, I grew up in the Sierra Nevada in kind of a moderate elevation, like around 6,000, 7,000 feet, um, where lush coniferous forests were just steps outside my front door. So my whole childhood was spent exploring these forests. And when I had a chance to pick where I wanted to live, I picked a very, very similar setup. 
surrounded by plants. So for me, plants have always represented home. And later on, um, I definitely will dive in a little bit more into education and studying plants. But in terms of why I really, really connect with plants, they've just always represented home to me. Yeah, beautiful. Give us a little bit of your own personal journey and perhaps the highlights of the people or places or plants that grew you into a human for whom this would become the focus of your educational careers, but would also uh, lead you to feel so passionately that you would help to educate the wider public um, in these times where fire and fire preparedness is often working um, against the idea of biodiversity and rich habitats and native plants in our home places. Uh, You got us started on this, Rachel, but why don't I return to you and say, keep us going a little bit on that that path. Of course. So in addition to all of the coniferous forests that where I lived, you know, in the Sierra Nevada had, they of course have meadows and caverns, rivers and lakes. Um, But for me, there was two big things one place and one plant that really kind of led me to my passion of biology, my passion of plants. So I grew up very close to the ethereal national park, um, Yosemite. And I spent a lot of time there. Every field trip, every camping trip was spent in Yosemite national park. So I was there a lot. I know that place like the back of my hand. And what better place to be inspired to pick your future passion than Yosemite National Park? Mm. And secondly, very much closer to home, just a few miles, I lived next to a northern grove of giant sequoias. So giant sequoias as a plant for me always had a big impact, literally, figuratively. They're the largest tree in the world, or if not the largest plant in the world. And between both of those two things, they really left me with a passion for the natural world. By the time I started thinking about what my path would be, I didn't even hesitate to pick biology, and I did not hesitate to pick plants, and I never wavered in this decision. Adrian, let's move back to you with this with this same question. Take us back a little bit to the people and places and plants that would lead you to be a a person for whom this was such a a passionate call to help um, be an antidote to plant blindness wherever you might find it. Yeah, my experience is a little different than Rachel. She has one sense of place, one place that is so deep and rich to her that it represents a part of her being. And for me, I lived in a lot of different places over time. I've lived in the Southeast, the Midwest, the Deep South, spent a lot of summers in Minnesota. So how many of us have had grandparents who had deep influences on our appreciation for the outside world? And for me, it was my grandmother Adeline. And the summers I spent there where I discovered things like that 
asparagus out of a can was not really a treat. It was just this green slimy stuff and it had no resemblance to what came out of her garden. Mm. Um, And I used to brag that my grandmother Adeline's flower garden was as long as a football field. Well, it seemed that way when I was a kid, but it was probably (laughs) only about, I don't know, 50 feet long by 15 feet deep. Um, I just have this sense of wonder Even today, when I go outside and see, you know, a bird building a new nest and sitting there quietly while I'm right there watering and saying hello. Then let's keep you going. As you, in theory, grew up and you went (laughs) off to do your higher education and you chose your career paths, what brought both of you to Chico State uh, or Butte College and our institutions of higher education here in Northern California? And then we'll move towards what brought you two together to take on this book. Uh, It was a very circuitous route. (laughs) Um, I did a bachelor's degree at UNC Chapel Hill, worked in lawn maintenance and landscaping and design in, in the middle of rural South Carolina for several years during a recession uh, where there were no jobs. And I volunteered for the Forest Service until I couldn't afford the gas. But in that volunteer work, I was able to string fire and do all sorts of things to help with forest management. And it really struck me that doing landscape design, unless it supported wildlife, was not valuable to me. And so I went back to the Research Triangle area of North Carolina, worked as a sweet potato technician for several years. So I can tell you lots about sweet potatoes. And then I went to graduate school in botany at University of Georgia for my master's and PhD. And I got to go places and do things in the course of uh, learning more that some people will never see. And I want to share that, you know, as much of the natural world and the beauty that's around us as possible. I ended up uh, after working at the Illinois Natural History Survey as a botanist and ecologist coming out here to Chico, along with my spouse, who's a biology professor, and have done consulting and teaching ever since, especially in Northern California. And again, um, many of the consulting jobs I've done have involved how do you recover from fire? How do you manage landscapes better for fire resilience in a way that accommodates, for example, vineyards and oak woodlands. So um, lots of adventures and it's a continuing process. (laughs) For me, I started out at Sonoma State and got my bachelor's of science there. I also started my early career of teaching there as well. And I never, ever thought that I would become a teacher. Everybody in my family is a teacher. And I was like, there's no way that that is happening to me. No way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But because I was so successful in a number of courses, I realized that I could become a tutor and I could pick what hours I wanted to work. Um, It really was the best job on campus, honestly. 
So I began tutoring as an undergrad. And then I finished and decided to get my master's at Chico State. And of course, uh, part of their graduate program is to allow graduate students to teach if they want to. And so I already was familiar with, with tutoring or teaching. And I continued to teach all through my graduate school experience, although I think I taught too much because it definitely distracted me from my work a lot because <laughs> I was so excited about teaching. And once I finished graduate school, I never left. They basically haven't been able to kick me out yet. I've continued to teach at CSU Chico as a lecturer. Um, and then I found out that there was another college in Butte County a community college called Butte College. And I applied to work there as well. Um, so now I work at both institutions and I get to teach so many different types of students, so many different types of courses. And from there, I connected with my husband who worked in fire mapping. And I learned so much. And then I realized there was a lot of, a lot more fires than I ever thought there were. Or, or maybe I was just confused and didn't watch the news. But for some reason, once I was connected with my husband, I realized there was a lot of fires and they feel like they're getting bigger and more dangerous over the 10 years we were together. And I just started doing research. And I realized that besides stop, drop and roll, Students aren't taught anything about fire science, about fire ecology, about the history of fire in our state of California. And so I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to design a class about this. You know, there's so many fires and there's no education about it. So I just started designing a course and luckily Butte College gave me the green light and I created a fire science slash fire ecology course for non-majors teaching Californians about fire. And I was so, so happy to do it. And honestly, within a few months of me getting the green light to start putting the class together, the campfire happened. And the campfire is where I live up in Megalia. So our community in Megalia and Paradise were affected by the campfire. And I realized there is so much we're going to have to repair beyond our community. The trauma associated with fire that a lot of Californians have is severe. And I wanted to continue to develop my course and help people understand, help mitigate the broken paradigm of fire science and fire ecology that was never there, but now is laced with trauma. And so I really had got started learning about fire and fire science well before we had the idea for the book. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. 
In the throes of fire season, especially in the fire-prone areas of Western North America, this week we turn to the idea of not only gardening for beauty, food, and habitat, but also fire preparedness. We're speaking with Dr. Adrian Edwards and Rachel Schleiger, both on faculty in biological sciences at institutions of higher education in Northern California. We'll be back for more on the germination story of their new book, Firescaping Your Home, out now from Timber Press. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. Hey, it's Jennifer. You know, one of the things I love about being a member of horticultural or garden societies is the communications you receive from them. Specifically, being a member of the Garden Conservancy, one of my favorite things is getting their seasonal catalog. The 2023 Summer and Fall Educational Programs Catalog landed in my mailbox with a beautiful, dense, and delicious thud recently. The catalog is full to the brim with information on the Conservancy's Digging Deeper offerings, which complement various open garden days around the country. The catalog is rich with dates for Fall Garden Master Series, including one on October 20th with David Godshall and Jenny Jones of Terramoto, based in L.A., exploring historical and future gardens. David is another of the outstanding speakers at the Conservancy's Garden Futures Summit in New York City, September 29th and 30th. The catalog also announces the Conservancy's fall literary webinars. So many of them look good, but I was particularly taken by one presentation with the three authors of a new book entitled Garden, Exploring the Horticultural World, out now from Fiden Press. The seminar takes place on Thursday, October 9th, starting at 2 p.m. Eastern, with the authors Matthew Biggs, Christine Paulus, and Abra Lee, who has twice been a guest on Cultivating Place and is yet another of the many fabulous speakers at the upcoming Garden Futures Summit. The book and the webinar look to be beautiful garden fair to look forward to this fall. You can find more information about all of this, the Digging Deeper, the online literary webinars, and of course, the Garden Futures Summit at gardenconservancy.org forward slash education. We're 
We're back now to our timely conversation with Dr. Adrian Edwards and Rachel Schleiger, both on faculty in biological sciences at California State University, Chico, as well as Butte College. They are authors of the new and much-needed resource, Firescaping Your Home, which combines the goals of being fire smart and fire prepared while also gardening for beauty, food, and habitat. As we come back, Rachel shares more about how the idea for the book germinated in the aftermath of the 2018 campfire that deeply impacted and still impacts our region. So after experiencing the campfire, my house was one of the very, very, very small margin of houses that did not burn down. But that doesn't mean that we didn't lose a lot of plants, a lot of the amazing plants that we had been growing in our yard. Pretty much everything burned around the house, except for the house. Nonetheless, I was working on a plan, a plan for my yard. And I was looking at all of the advice that I was researching online about defensive space, the science of defensive space, seeing a lot of different opinions, a lot of different recommendations, and getting frustrated with that. And then on top of that, as an ecologist, I was looking for recommendations that also incorporated habitat gardening. And there was nothing. I couldn't find anything that incorporated habitat gardening with defensive space. And I was getting really frustrated and I was like, Adrian, I know that you're experienced in landscaping. Do you know of any resources that I could use to put these two objectives that I have together? And that's when she came in and was like, no, we are writing the book. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Great. That was well summarized. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Adrian, take it from there. Why did you say that? Because I knew she was right there. And I was also bumping up against these recommendations, sometimes uh, even complaints from homeowners in wildfire country saying, well, the insurance company is asking me to clear everything within 100 feet. And now we know from research that we included in this book that if you clear everything around structures by 100 feet, you're basically opening up your home as a target for flying embers, which is the number one way that houses burn down. So it was very uh, an organic discussion between she and I, and we, um, I think, put together something better than either one of us could have done on our own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what would you say when you began drilling down into what you wanted to cover, what would you say was your primary goal and who is your primary audience? Well, from my perspective, I was focusing on wanting to help people that are in fire prone communities, like the one that I live in. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to design something that makes it a little bit more digestible to make a plan, but then to also make a plan that worked for their exact property and the variables that come with that property and 
households themselves. Every family is different. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to support those people that really need to be aware of where they live and the dangers that come with that. But then to also say, we moved here for a reason. We moved here because of it being an amazingly beautiful place. And that's, I didn't even look inside my house. All I did was walk around the property when I was, we were looking and I said, I want to live here. I don't care what the inside of the house is. I want to live here. And that's what I based my decision on mm-hmm. more so than the house itself. And I know a lot of people feel the same way. So I wanted to help those people out, but then also help them really support the reason why they're here in the first place. It's a beautiful place and we have amazing habitats and wildlife that we need to support. Yeah. Nice. What about you, Adrian? What would you add to that? Well, I would, I would add that habitat, habitat, habitat. I have seen too many places again, where if all you plant is oleander, a hundred feet away from your house, then you've created Swiss cheese holes in the middle of the wildland that you came to live in. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important to understand that you can create habitat. You can have vegetation around your structures if done correctly and still be fire resistant and fire resilient. Yeah. I just want to, uh, Remind listeners that Adrian and Rachel are the co-authors of a brand new, much-needed book entitled Firescaping Your Home, a manual for readiness in wildfire country. What do you mean when you say fire resilient? Like, is there anything that is completely fire safe, Adrian and Rachel? And, and If not, what do we mean by fire resilient? Oh, yeah. Fire resilient, I think, is a much better way of thinking about living Mm -hmm. in wildfire country than just uh, trying to come to a place that's fire, absolutely fireproof, right? So being resilient, of course, is just the ability to recover and adjust to change. And fire is a disturbance in an ecosystem. It's a change that resets the vegetation and the communities, right? So we have to learn how living or biotic communities rebound and recover from fire. That depends on where you live. And also how we can adjust and be resilient to wildfire and recovery after that disturbance. So. We're very careful in the book, actually, to stay away from those um, terms that are used like catastrophic and destructive wildfire um, that often get thrown about in the news Mm -hmm. um, because it's a process. And we need to live with this process the same that we've learned to live with hurricanes or tornadoes. You have contingency plans for your structures and you can still support the habitat around you. Right. And in approaching how we landscape and prepare around our homes in order to be fire resilient and support these habitats and biotic communities that we love, how did you approach this? 
So we actually went back and forth trying to decide what we wanted to do for our our introductory chapters. And the biggest thing was introducing our main two objectives for the book. Um, the nature of fire and habitats and biotic communities. So I'll start with the fire chapter. So in this section, we talk about all the subtle variables that influence fire behavior. There are many, many, many variables. However, I want we wanted to make sure to kind of start with something where people can kind of have a baseline and then kind of work into the details because we're both all about details, but we know that we're trying to do, to write this book for any person off the street who wants to be able to fire escape. So in the nature of fire chapter, we first discussed what influences fire behavior because those are the key variables for understanding how to design your defensive space. So number one is the weather on your property. Do you have a lot of wind? Do you get a lot of uh, heavy sunlight during certain times of the day? Do you have a specific aspect? Um, and that relates to another topic. Um, but nonetheless, trying to understand about the weather on your property during the summer as well as during the winter. One of the biggest threats in a wildfire is wind. If it is very, very windy, there's honestly not that much that you can do. Um, and that's what we experienced in the campfire. Mm -hmm. Winds were so severe that no matter how deep your defensive space was, it doesn't matter. So understanding a little bit about the type of weather that you have at your house is really important. So for example, I live in probably the worst situation you could have for a wildfire, which is at the top of a ridge that's very windy. <laughs> so for me, that meant that I needed to create a more or a widened defensive space. So there's two different strategies for defensive space. One is the standard approach where you use the 5, 30, and then 90 approach. And the other one is essentially tripled in each zone. So I know because I have severe weather, especially very severe wind, that I needed to have a larger defensive space because of the way that the wind works at my house. So just knowing even just about wind can mean a lot when it comes to designing your defensive space. So this chapter was about understanding those variables mm -hmm. and being able to say, okay, I live in an area that has not that much wind. That's great for defensive space and for keeping my home safe. So we kind of wrote it in a way that people could take notes and begin designing their defensive space in the next chapters. So weather's just one, um, but there's also topography, which is the shape of the area that you live. 
as well as the fuels. Do you have lots of grasses? Do you have lots of shrubs and trees? Knowing the kinds of fuels that you have is also very, very important. Yeah. Go back to those numbers you just gave us and explain them a little more for people that might not be familiar with them, Rachel. So this is one of the things that was really troubling to me. So if I search defensive space right now in Google, you'll see 10, 15 different ways that people have designed defensive space. Mm-hmm. And defensive space is all about your zones. So you have a zone that's closest to the house, a zone that's just outside of that's so a little further away, yep. and then a zone just outside of that. So Defensive space is about deciding your zones, how wide they're going to be, and then what density of plants that you can have safely in each zone. So when I looked online, there was so many different recommendations for this. And I was like, I don't understand this. Why are there so many different recommendations? And they all have to do with all the behavior influencing variables of weather topography and fuels. So you design it around that. But in general, there are two main starter, I like to say starter, (laughs) defensive space recommendations for each zone. So if you live in a property that doesn't have very super high fire danger, you can have zone one just be five feet, for example. Right. Right. And then zone two would go out to 30 feet. And then zone three would go out to uh, 90 or 100 feet. Okay. And then, you know, for me, basically, I triple each of those zone widths because of where I live. So the more fire danger you have, the larger each of those zones should be. So your zone one is a 15 foot clearance around your house. Exactly. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In the throes of fire season here in North America, this week we turn to the idea of gardening with fire preparedness in mind. We're speaking with Dr. Adrian Edwards and Rachel Schleiger, authors of a new book, Firescaping Your Home, a manual for readiness in wildfire country. We'll be right back for more with Adrian and Rachel right after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. Right now, the vegetable and fruit garden are full to overflowing with seasonal favorites. Tomatoes, cucumbers, zucchini, zinnia, and cosmos. Corn is coming along. Pumpkins are coming along. Salvias are blooming their hearts out. The acorns are fattening on the oaks of our area. And while it is hot and dry, it is a season of abundance. My work in the garden and here on Cultivating Place, in books and public events, is a testament to the great biodiversity and abundance of this world. It is a privilege to be planted so firmly in this hopeful and generative soil. I think this is one of the greatest gifts of the garden. It's always cycling life in myriad ways. Wouldn't you agree?
We're back now to our conversation with Dr. Adrian Edwards and Rachel Schleiger, authors of Firescaping Your Home, a manual for readiness in wildfire country, which combines the goals of being fire smart and fire prepared while also gardening for beauty, food, and habitat. As we come back, Adrian shares more about the importance of hardening the home as well as considering your landscape design and choices. Yeah, hardening the home, actually, we would argue is the most important part of what you can do. And again, uh, referring to mm-hmm. those those zones, the zero to five zone should be clear of any organic matter during fire season. That doesn't mean that you couldn't perhaps plant some geophytes like tritillea and even daffodils, if that's what you fancy. But the area should be clear of fuels and tools leaning against the structures or whatever uh, during fire season. What is sometimes called the lean and green zone from five foot to 30 feet is where you can have good tended vegetation. So you can have islands that are maybe intersected by non-combustible materials like gravel mulches or bare ground between little islands that contain nice clusters of plantings. And it's important as well to keep in mind that wildlife doesn't just operate on one level, that the more structure you add, the more food for pollinators you're providing, the more resources and shelter you're providing as well. And we also found, interestingly, that if you really understand the layout of your property and the way the wind works in different times of the year, during the day or during the night, you can actually plant in a way or thin your plants in a way to actually shelter your structures from the wind, which can also capture embers and reduce the ember shower on a house during a wildfire, not during a catastrophic one necessarily like the campfire, but even a fire shelter belt like that could give you a few more minutes of extra time to evacuate. And recent research has shown that in the 30 to 100 foot range, the outermost belt or tripled as if you're in a higher risk area like Rachel, is less important than that middle zone, the lean and green zone where you need to keep your plants healthy and hydrated because, of course, water stops fire. Yeah. And what's interesting about this, right, is that we as gardeners, as someone who lives here, who has been impacted by several of the fires that have gone through our region in the last 10, 15 years, you know, there's this balance of how you want your home to be lived in and around uh, with fire in mind, with drought in mind, with shade in mind, and, you know, trying to diminish your use of air conditioning or whatever it might be. And so you, you have to balance all of these things. But I think you know from my experience of the of the campfire and and in reading your book as well that choosing to use water to keep that mid section well hydrated in the summer is a pretty important element 
to how we approach our gardens in summer in fire areas? Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we really wanted to emphasize in the book, um, because everybody's always scared of their plants, scared of having plants in the yard, um, because I think there's just been a lot of just general advice, just get rid, like, like Adrian said earlier, just have 100 feet of clearance, just get rid of everything 100 feet, you know, to your house. But the thing is, is that a healthy plant that is full of water is more resistant to fire than your home. Your home is made of dead plants. It's essentially like a dead pile of firewood compared to a living green plant that is completely filled with water. One of those things will light on fire very easily, which is the house. One of them will not, which is the plants. Right. So plants aren't necessarily the enemy here, and we can utilize them to protect our structures, which are much more vulnerable to fire than our plants. Yeah. And I think that uh, that other comment uh, or um, remark that you noted, Adrian, about, you know, Clearing your space of potential hazards during fire season is kind of key. I mean, one of the things that I think all of our fires in Northern California in the last few years have shown is that, as Rachel just said, our houses are more vulnerable. One house blows up and it's close to another house that heats the next house and blows it up. So again, it's not the plants that are perpetuating this so much as it is the the weather and the design of the the neighborhood or the the structures in an area. There was also a lot of talk about wooden fences and plants that had not been cared for, not been well watered, and not been well pruned. Want to talk about that a little bit? I think a really great example is... um, at least in our Mediterranean area, manzanita shrubs get a really bad rap as being highly flammable and burning really hot. And they do. Once they ignite, they do burn hot. But if you put them in a context where they're perhaps a specimen that is not surrounded by other vegetation, they're limbed up and they're hydrated, they can actually be pretty fire resistant. And so it's the context of your landscape can have a huge impact on whether or not and how much it burns and whether or not your structures ignite. So if you know and understand your plants really well and the wind patterns around your house, you might even be able to bend a few rules or prioritize certain things over others. Like if you have a really lush green plant that happens to be five feet from your house, prune it back some uh, once fire season begins. I like that approach. And I will say that the the campfire went straight through my partner's property. The house did not burn, neither did the front garden, um, which is around the house uh, with clearance between the house and it. But because it was a well-tended, well-watered garden, um, because that is where he chooses to put his water allocation it held on beautifully, which was nice to see. And I can think of several other plant groups in our region, native plants specifically, that are supporting habitat uh, that people say are so fire prone, but in fact, they're fire prone in large wildland areas where they have built up a lot of fuel underneath them. 
it's a different situation in a home garden that is carefully and conscientiously thought out and cared for. Absolutely. And this really ties into the idea of different biotic communities, because, um, for example, a redwood forest tends to burn somewhat frequently on, a, a say, a range of zero to 35 years. There might be a fire in a redwood forest, but they tend to be low intensity fires. Chaparral is a completely different animal. They are shrub thickets native to our Mediterranean climate that burn very infrequently on a range ranging from about 30 to 150 or more years. But those are high intensity fires that burn the vegetation to the ground. And then the plants are adapted to regenerate either from uh, the roots or from seeds. So grasses um, also burn more frequently and they can be medium to high intensity fires. And actually a lot of um, structure fires can also be caused by grasslands because there's, you know, there may not be as much fuel as there would be with wood, but they move really fast under windy conditions. Um, and mm -hmm. so they can hit a house pretty quickly. So you have to, you, you, it's, if you're going to live in wildland, uh, wildfire country, the more you can learn about the kind of community, natural community you live in and the wind patterns then you're really um, preparing yourself for understanding how fire might move in that landscape. And to make decisions from there. Yeah, yeah. Then you have two substantive chapters at the end about maintenance and recovery. Would you like to give us some highlights as we come close to the end of our time here on takeaways that you would offer out to listeners from those two chapters. Maybe let's start with you, Rachel. I would say once you get to those chapters, probably there's going to be a lot, a lot ping-ponging around in people's brains because <laughs> before you even get there, there's just so much context and so much we provide to our readers before we even get there. But then once you get there, you know, there's, there's a lot of recommendations and how to do things. Even me reading the book, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's just so much information and I love it. But at the same time, I can imagine how people could get overwhelmed. So I would say from the perspective of design and maintenance, focus on, like Adrian said earlier, focus on your structure first, and then move from your structure out just one little inch at a time. Um, thinking about your relationship with the habitats, with your house, with your property, with the wildlife, just start making observations. You know, that's, I think, a good step one is looking around your house, making lots of observations. And then we have so many mm -hmm. resources in the book. So let's just say you live where we do in Northern California. We have a lot of different recommendations to be like, you know, maybe you don't know the plants in your area. Maybe you don't know the type of habitats that you have. But here, let us help you um, figure that out. So then you can begin looking at research and then identifying some of the plants in your yard. And from there, learning how to begin maintenance on them. So 
just, I would say one step Mm -hmm. at a time from the structure moving out, because you could be (laughs) working on your defensive space for years and years and years. We're not expecting readers to take this and immediately do everything um, because it's a lot. It's a lot to consider. We want people to slow down and really think critically about all of these things we're recommending and just take it one step at a time. I think that's important, um, especially because so much of this is reactive um, after something that troubles or or scares us and um, and may not be well thought out. And this is a resource that allows you to be a a meaningful gardener, a meaningful contributor to habitat and healthy biology and be fire wise as well, in my opinion of the book. Uh, Adrian, what would you add to to what Rachel has said about the takeaways you really want people to go home with today? Yeah, I, I would add to that that we really emphasize how important it is to build community with your human neighbors too. One weak link, one wood fence can make a difference between, um, you know, fences make good neighbors, but if they're wood fences, you might want to reconsider (laughs) what you build them out of in terms of being able to slow fires and uh, prevent structure losses. So you need to know who might need, who could help you who you might need to help in your community. And um, a wonderful thing that's been happening in the last few years is um, more and more fire safe councils have been forming and more and more communities are becoming um, more informed and taking action to help make their communities more resilient. And so we suggest, we, we give a few suggestions there and there's lots of resources on the web. The, the final takeaway I would say for me is don't be afraid to support habitat because you are you are living in a place that's beautiful and don't be afraid to add more beauty to it. Um, I live in a, a boring sub- suburban neighborhood that's near a fire zone. And I just put in a little 35 gallon in-ground pond because I needed some soil to add to a raised vegetable garden. It's sort of like make work that gardeners do to ourselves. (laughs) Um, But within two days of filling it and putting in my Sagittaria and my Dharmara, the umbrella plant, um, I had a dragonfly already in residence there. Mm. And I added some uh, mosquito fish. They're not going to be able to escape, but I don't have to worry about uh, mosquitoes being uh, breeding in there. But it's also a water resource for the habitat or, or for the animals around. Beautiful. If you were going to recommend three plant, either genera or families uh, that you would like to see people work with more as native plants in California or the West that will work with them for fire resilience. What would those be? Let's start with you, Adrian. Well, and that's so tough because we're focusing on all of the Pacific Coast states in the West. Um I would say start with your uh, trees. And um, I know that you've had speakers here in the past who have emphasized the importance of oaks and how they support hundreds and hundreds of different species. And so they would be a keystone in many habitats. 
Beyond that, I love sages because I love to watch the bumblebees sleeping and playing in them. <laughs> um, and, oh, to give a third one, don't forget about your sedges because they are underutilized in uh, landscapes as well, I think. Great. Great. What about you, Rachel? Well, I'm going to start with um, some no-nos. I would challenge readers to first identify if they have any invasive species on their property. And getting rid of those will make a very deep impact on making their property more fire safe, as well as getting rid of plants that have no habitat value, essentially. So getting rid of invasives. So for example, where I am, there is a lot of broom. And generally in the West, there are a lot of different species of broom that are highly invasive, make fires worse, and are not good for habitats in general. So I would say, find out what your invasive species are, make sure they're not there, and get rid of them if you can. After that, I have been extremely falling in love with bush poppies where I live. They are a very well drought tolerant species and they don't have as much die off as a forb would. So they're pretty much there all year round. They have a little bit of leaves, but not too much cleanup. Um, and generally they, you don't really need to water them as much after they're established. So I love the bush poppy and it's a good plant essentially to switch out if you have broom on your property. Because I know people love broom because there's so many yellow flowers and it's pretty to some people. <laughs> but uh, bush poppies are a, a great option. Um, and then I'm also a big fan of the Western redbud. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. It is deciduous, but there's still not a lot that you really have to clean up. And they're a fairly small plant, but they're a really great plant in the sense of their timing. They flower really early on in, in, in general. And so they're a really good early nectar plant when there's nothing else flowering. So I really love the redbud. In lieu of a wooden fence, what do you recommend? It's really tough. So I know a lot of <laughs> I know a lot of people like the wood fences because they provide a good amount of privacy, which of course everybody wants, especially when they're living in a neighborhood where houses are a little closer together. So obviously, you know, we would suggest in our book to get a non-combustible fence, like a metal chain link fence. Obviously, that's not so pretty. <laughs> um, but there are ways um, that you can add some privacy, although most of the time what I see people do is adding those little like plastic slips that go in them, which of course, I don't want to promote either. <laughs> but mm. it's from what I've read, um, I have mm -hmm. seen suggestions to try and get as much of the wood out as possible and replacing it with better alternatives or 
Um, I've also seen this technique where um, wood fences are charred on the outside to make them less, any fire to be able to be less penetrable because it creates this kind of um, barrier from like the outside wood to the inside wood. Um, that's a lot more fire resistant than raw wood. Um, and actually that's a Japanese technique that I have been mm -hmm. reading about. And so, you know, if you really, really want that privacy, you know, there's really no other options other than the wood fence, but you could do some adaptations like that to make it a little bit more fire resilient. Well, I would argue too, uh, I've, a lot more people, uh, are starting to use corrugated metal. Mm -hmm. yes. which can be made attractive. And um, there are other ways that you could use metal. Uh, you know, of course, I don't, many metals like wrought iron would be very expensive and out of the price range for most of us. But um, I think that maybe in coming years, we will see a lot more metal fencing options that are non-combustible. And in the very least, that five feet that attaches to your house should not be wood. Yes. yes. I noticed that you are both avoiding uh, the topic of a vinyl fence. <laughs> They're bad. Uh, and why? Why are they bad? Explain this to listeners because they are the they are the most available and least expensive option. Why do we not recommend them? Right. Well, they melt mm -hmm. uh, and they burn. Toxic. Yeah. And they've got toxic chemicals in them that uh, have a lifespan. And then the, the you know, when the fence ages out, then it goes to a landfill. So the process of creating these vinyl fences has a large carbon footprint and is not ecologically very friendly. I would also suggest what Adrian suggested earlier, get to know your neighbors. Maybe if you get to know your neighbors um, and come up with some methods that will work for you um, and for your community, like for example, all my neighbors aren't as close as Adrian neighbors, but we feel comfortable enough to not have fences in our yards. We don't get nitpicky when somebody's kid's ball ends up in our yard, you know, and, and I love the fence-free life. Although again, you know, not everybody can do that, but if there's way that you can make compromises and work together, I would highly suggest that. Thank you both very much for the contribution of this book to our cultural literacy as we are evolving and adapting uh, to being much better stewards and citizens of fire-prone uh, areas or fire-adapted regions that have their own very distinct beauty and, and value. Thank you so much. And I hope everyone can learn to listen to the natural sounds around them and learn from them as well. Yes, it was an absolute pleasure to be here with you. Dr. Adrian Edwards and Rachel Schleiger are the co-authors of the new and much-needed resource, Firescaping Your Home, a manual for readiness in wildfire country, which combines the goals of being fire smart and fire prepared, while also gardening for beauty, food, and habitat. Both women are on faculty in biological sciences at California State University, Chico, and Butte College, and they draw on their years of experience as researchers 
educators, and gardeners in wildfire country to enliven their manual, which includes 640 resilient native plant recommendations from California, Oregon, and Washington to create lush, attractive, and defensible space. The book is both available wherever you get your books and applicable wherever you might garden with fire in mind. My conversation with Adrian and Rachel was longer than we could fit into our one-hour on-air window. For the fullness of this conversation about the importance of fire readiness while gardening for food, beauty, and habitat, including some of their favorite plants and their thoughts on garden fencing in fire country, make sure to listen to the podcast version of the program over at cultivatingplace.com under the podcast tab. links there. Or you can always find Cultivating Place wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, NPR One, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. And of course, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram at cultivating underscore place to follow along with extra photos and information about each week's episode and this gardening life. Join us again next week when we turn to sustainable thinking and growing of a different and floral nature in conversation with British floral designer Shane Conley. A designer to royals, among others, he is also, perhaps most importantly, a tireless advocate for sustainable floristry at all levels. Shane will be in Seattle, Washington for three days of Slow Flowers Society workshop and events September 29th through October 1st. More information and this conversation next week right here. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications support by Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.